This is Undisciplined. I'm Nalini Nadkarni. It is rare and wonderful to witness the transformation in the ways we literally see the world. In science, the known world expanded with the invention of the microscope, the telescope, the ultrasound machine. The capacity of scientists to extrapolate their understanding of patterns and processes at a small scale to a large scale has had no strong answers until now. The tools of remote sensing, technologies that quantify the reflectance and emission of energy of surfaces, are transforming the ways we understand the world. One recent paper discusses how data from satellites, airplanes, and drones inform our understanding of biodiversity around the globe. Another paper by the same lead author has taken on the remarkable task of calculating the value of the ecosystem services provided by trees. Each year, trees generate $114 billion, and just two types of trees, pines and oaks, generate over 40% of that value. I'm talking to one of the authors of those studies, Dr. Janine Cavender-Bears, the distinguished McKnight professor at the University of Minnesota, a plant physiologist and ecologist. Janine, thanks so much for taking the time to share aspects of your remarkable research. I'm really eager to hear and to share the findings of two of your recent papers. One was about the connections between remote sensing and biodiversity, which came out in the journal Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. And the other is in PLOS, Sustainability and Transformation. On And in it, you and your team have documented the economic and non-economic values of trees. But let's start with a paper on remote sensing. Um, I've learned from it that um, scientists from many different disciplines are getting a really new way to perceive and understand our world, letting us literally see and measure the world in new ways. But I want to make sure that I understand the scope of remote sensing. Can you describe what technologies are included in that by, by your definition, the definition of you and your, and your colleagues? Sure. Well, there are a vast range of technologies used for remote sensing, and these can occur across scales from being right above a surface or detecting signals from space and everything in between, so aircraft and drones as well. Uh, So signals from ecosystems can be detected using a range of different kinds of sensors that get at water or photosynthesis or chemical variation or structure. And these advances allow us to detect biodiversity because of the variation in life's form and function, chemical attributes, structural attributes. And so by detecting this kind of variation at different scales, we are getting closer and closer to being able to monitor the Earth's biodiversity from space, from aircraft, and and from other platforms. That does sound like real real innovations in terms of our ability to perceive and understand and, I guess, interpret what's going on in terms of biodiversity on our planet. And I, I see from your author list that actually 11 different institutions in three different countries have been involved with this review and integration. So I think it's a remarkable piece of science that you've been able to do that. 
I was also really interested in the sort of amazing litany of scientific fields that have benefited from remote sensing, from paleoclimatology to tree physiology. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the breadth of scientific questions um, that can be approached from remote sensing. I know your focus was on biodiversity, but, but what other fields have sort of, I don't know, been given a boost or a jump by the, by the advent of these remote sensing tools? Well, I'll, I can focus on the the scientific basis for NASA's surface biology and geology mission, which will be launched within the next decade, and it's a major investment by NASA, and it's serving both the biological and the geological communities. And so, I would say those two communities of scientists are going through a revolution in how we measure processes and patterns. Uh, this is really an opportunity now to measure processes that we typically measure in a single ecosystem or a, a single watershed. We can now measure these globally um, if we can learn how to interpret the signals. So I would say beyond biology, beyond ecology and evolution, which is where I'm, I'm focused, geology is also um, getting a big boost. And um, I'm sure there are many other disciplines as well. You also said something that resonated with me as an, as an ecologist. Very often um, the sequence of ecological studies is to, is to document some sort of pattern and then study the processes that create that pattern and then apply those two pieces of understanding, pattern and process, to make some kind of predictions about how a system will, will go when it's when it has some sort of pressure, um, environmental or internal. And I'm, I can see how remote sensing might help us find patterns at large scales and, and possibly processes like photosynthesis based on the reflectance you know, from vegetation. But I'm wondering how the use of remote sensing um, might have led us or you to make better predictions about systems. Well, there are folks working on that and... Um... It's a major effort and major focus of NASA right now. Um, but I'll just point to the paper that we're talking about and emphasize that one of the goals of this paper is to clarify that we still have to do experiments and we still have to do process-based modeling and, and continue to advance those so that the remote sensing can be inputs to that but that we're still working out the processes based on the ex kinds of experiments we have long done using the other kinds of tools that biologists use to understand process. And remote sensing is one tool within that, but it's, it can't do it all by itself. And that's one of the main points of the paper. Yeah, I, that came across very strongly and it made me feel happy because I was thinking, oh my gosh, are all my future graduate students going to be just sort of sitting in front of their computers looking at remote imagery images, uh, but not going out to the field to carry out observations or to carry out experiments or to verify models, you know, when and, and actually ground truthing and, and forest truthing and ecosystem truthing at the same time. So I, I'm glad to hear that that's part of the sort of where we are in terms of remote sensing, that we, we still continue to need um, process and pattern-oriented studies. Yeah, so, th so there is a ton of excitement about the use of remote sensing technologies and the ability to see things that we've never been able to see before or extents we've never been able to track before. 
but then there's always a coming back to well, what are the limitations and what can't we get with that? And that's part of what we look at as well. And we, we did this exercise of looking at the goals and milestones of the Convention on Biodiversity that are um, being developed currently. And we did realize that for every one of those, remote sensing can, for the ones that remote sensing can contribute to, it can't do it alone. It can't address the needs of monitoring for those milestones without other kinds of uh, data. And so we, we did that exercise to just see what it would look like. Could we actually get at those with remote sensing data alone? And it turns out we can't. Well, I think that is a very, um, how shall I say, this intellectually humble thing or exercise for you and your team to have done, because very often we get carried away with the tools that seem to be so promising, and yet we have to understand that there are that they may not solve all of our questions or be this single approach that we need to take to understand these very complex systems. Yeah, so I would like to emphasize one tool that that's been very exciting um, within the realm of ecology and evolution, and that is uh, spectroscopy and its ability to scale up in terms of remote sensing. And so this is often called hyperspectral remote sensing. It's the use of reflected photons across a vast range of wavelengths, well beyond where the eye can see. So the eye can see within about 400 to 700 nanometers. And we basically have three bands within that that we use to understand the visual world. But sensors that we call full range, these, these extend from 400 nanometers to, let's say, 2,500 nanometers. So they go well past where the eye can see. They go into the near infrared and they go into the short wave infrared. And of course, there are even longer wave sensors and so forth. But this range has vastly increased what we can perceive in the world. It's like extending our eye. It's like going from black and white to color. Now we're going from color to hyperspectral or to this full range spectroscopy. And we can measure that. So I work on plants. We can measure that reflectance signals or spectral fingerprints on individual leaves of a plant. But then we can use the same sensors above the canopy of a tree, for example, and get the spectral fingerprint of a tree. And then we can do this at greater distances and get spectral fingerprints of communities and ecosystems. And this kind of data can go into biosphere models that help understand dynamics of, of the living earth system. So this is where uh, the Biology Integration Institute that I'm leading called ASCEND, Advancing Spectral Biology in Changing Environments to Understand Diversity. This is a institute. That is a great acronym, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. It's yeah. funded by the National Science Foundation. This is the realm that we are focusing on, scaling from leaves to whole plants to ecosystems to the biosphere using spectroscopic information because it is so useful for scaling. And so we are, a, we are a collection of uh, scientists across disciplines and across institutions focused on using these technologies for scaling processes. You know, um, sort of moving a little bit away from the scientific aspects, which you've explained so so clearly and so beautifully, um, scientists are increasingly being told to think about the broader impacts of their research. And I can see that your paper has had a lot of um, 
you discussed a lot of connections to conservation, the actual practice of conservation. And I'm wondering now that you've published this and you have your team of people who are so aware of the advantages of using remote sensing, are conservation biologists sort of beating at your door to use these tools or do they not quite yet see the the conservation applications of of remote sensing to determine biodiversity for different ecosystems on our planet? Well, there is a global effort to use these kinds of tools to monitor and study biodiversity. And I should mention the group on Earth Observations and the Biodiversity Observation Network that is global and brings together many different scientists across nations and disciplines to work on monitoring biodiversity with a focus on incorporating these kinds of earth observations, these kinds of tools. Um, So I'm by no means uh, (laughs) the only one doing this. I'm just one of of many. And but I will say that I care very deeply about this problem, and that's why I'm in it. I'm, I'm doing this because I really want to contribute to the advances in measuring and monitoring biodiversity for conservation. I don't think there's anything more important right now than to try to stop the hemorrhaging of species loss and diversity loss around the globe. And so... I'm really eager to do what I can to contribute to those efforts. And no doubt that you are. I have no doubt that you are. I really love hearing that that sentiment and that that drive and impetus that you have to use the science that you do to improve our understanding of, of how we protect some of these ecosystems. You know, there's another aspect of broader impacts that, that you mentioned in your paper that I really appreciated. You mentioned indigenous tribes and their ownership or care and stewardship of certain parts of our planet. And I'm wondering how we how do we collectively ensure that their lands and their mineral rights and their water rights are safe? When we think about looking at the earth from these larger scales, are we including them in the workings of determining uh, biodiversity? Do they need to be included directly in that? Or how do we go about just recognizing and appreciating that these, that indigenous tribes own and control and are stewards of, of much of the land surface here? Well, you articulated that very well. So a lot of this emphasis comes from the Intergovernmental Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. Uh, And I was involved with um, that international effort for several years for the Americas assessment. And there was a major emphasis on trying to incorporate indigenous knowledge because of the recognition that there are different ways of knowing and Remote sensing might be one way of knowing, but um, indigenous people have a connection to the land and a connection to biodiversity that goes beyond what machines can measure and goes beyond what um, scientists who aren't from a place might come in and observe. And there has been a tendency to not give sufficient recognition to the knowledge that indigenous people have. Um, And I would say that Robin Wall Kimmerer she explains this so well in in her writings. Um, and so while I don't have the answers for how to protect land and rights to resources on indigenous land, I, I do feel very strongly that indigenous perspectives and indigenous knowledge 
is critical to incorporate in all of our thinking about stewardship and biodiversity management. I, I, I so appreciate that. Thank you for, for stating that and for putting it in your peer-reviewed scientific paper. I think it's really important for scientists who work in ecosystems, whether or not they have an indigenous input or not, are aware of the importance of that and the fact that scientists are, are thinking about that and trying to contribute as well. I wanted to pivot just a bit here and talk for a little while about your second paper, which you and another team have just published, about the economic values of trees, which, as a forest ecologist, is very close to my own heart. And I'm wondering, what was it that sort of triggered you to put together this study? What was the impetus for this piece of work? Well, it goes back to a a distributed graduate seminar that I initiated and taught collaboratively with economists, including my colleague at the University of Minnesota, uh, Steve Pulaski. And in that sustainability science course that we developed, um, there was a concept of inclusive wealth, that you could actually think about the wealth of nations and the wealth of that our planet has, not just in terms of commerce and GDP, but in terms of natural capital and in terms of human capital. And there, if we could somehow figure out a way to measure all the things that are really of value to humanity, we might not be so destructive in our approach to the planet. And so that was the impetus for trying to find a way to communicate to people who think about uh, the world in terms of dollars. So while it is actually difficult for me as, as an ecologist and evolutionary biologist to, to think about putting a dollar value on a tree species, it also does open a door to communicate in a conversation where the where dollars and cents mean something. And so that was that was so we put together, so Steve and I we we ran a working group at the Socio-Environmental Synthesis Center, SUSINC, and brought together a group of uh, environmental economists, ecologists, and environmental biologists. And, and that was the, the goal was to try to figure out projects we could do that would bring together knowledge of ecology, evolution, and economics in the context of sustainability science. I see. And so can you, it looked like you um, sort of separated your assessment in two general categories. One was the materials that that trees provide, like lumber and timber and so forth. And then the other was ecosystem services. And I wonder if you could talk about those two categories and what you found in terms of the sort of the balance of, of what those two major categories contribute to their economic value. Well, let me just start by saying we actually consider all of those to be ecosystem services. They're just different different kinds of ecosystem services. And I'll also mention that there there is an international consensus to start changing the terminology from ecosystem services to nature's contributions to people. But we treat them as really saying the same thing. But the the service that a piece of lumber provides, that is also an ecosystem service or a contribution of nature to people, just as the air pollution that is removed by tree leaves or the carbon that is sequestered 
in the trunks of trees. Those are all services that benefit people. And so they are all ecosystem services. They are all uh, nature's contributions to people, but they're different kinds. And the, the timber that that comes from trees when a tree is cut down, that goes through markets. It's easy to put a dollar value on it because um, we have a whole system for doing that kind of accounting. Any, anything that goes through markets, it's easy to put a dollar value on. It's harder to put a dollar value on the services, the benefits we get from nature um, that don't go through markets, like carbon storage and air pollution removal. There And there are many services that we didn't try to assess because we didn't have sufficient data to do that. These data are just for the United States, and they're taken from the U.S. Forest Service inventory, as well as plantation information from crop growers. And that they do not, this does not include urban areas. I'll just say that. Oh, okay. Okay. And what about values that like are super tough to put a, a money value on, like spirituality or aesthetics uh, or emotional value. Um, I know when I walk down the street here in Salt Lake City, which is essentially kind of a desert ecosystem, when I see a street tree, there's something in me that responds to it in a positive way that makes that street more important to me because it has trees on it than, say, a tree that doesn't. So I'm wondering, are those are those values sort of just recognized as not being counted? Or is there a way to put some sort of dollar value on aesthetic or spiritual or emotional values? Well, certainly uh, economists have gone to great lengths to try to quantify spiritual and aesthetic values of, in this case, this would be trees. So, you know, what is the value of fall foliage and, you know, in terms of tourism and so forth, or you know, housing values, property values, when you've got a tree in it or not, um, these kinds of things. But it's tricky to do that. And, and it isn't work that I do on a regular basis, but I have thought about it a lot in the context of teaching uh, this course on sustainability science. And we always end up in the course in this dilemma of how is it that we when we do this exercise of valuing nature, it's always coming from an anthropocentric perspective. Humans are in the center benefiting from nature. And it that doesn't get at the rights of nature, which isn't quite your question, but that is another perspective. And it is actually a more indigenous perspective of, are humans part of nature? If we're part of nature, we also have to think about the trees <laughs> and the other organisms as having rights to exist. And what is our right to destroy other organisms? You know, I might publish a paper with this wonderful group of collaborators on the economic value of trees, but at the same time, I also harbor a perspective that trees have a right to exist and that they are, that nature has a right to exist. It has evolved over a couple of billion years on this planet and humans have come along in the blink of an eye. What right do we have to destroy it? Wow. That is really, I think, very profound. And I love hearing that a scientist such as yourself with such high standing and stature continues to think about rights of trees, rights of nature, um, as well as, and at the same time, holding, holding multiple ways of thinking about how we go about valuing and interacting with nature. And I think that's, you know, perhaps 
people who aren't scientists think that scientists have this one way of understanding, this one way of knowing. But I think many scientists, such as yourself, can handle holding on to multiple ways of thinking, of feeling, of of understanding. And I think it's very important to hold those. So, so thank you for sharing that. And just sort of to close off, Janine, you're already an expert in multiple disciplines in leading large groups of interdisciplinary people to answer questions that you're passionate and interested in finding out about. I'm wondering what area do you foresee you'll be working on next? I think this work that, uh, that we're doing now um, that I mentioned the Ascend Biology Integration Institute, where we're using spectroscopic information coupled with process-based models to understand biodiversity across scales and through time, through evolutionary history. This will sustain me for a very long time. And <laughs> <laughs> I think so. That's to put it mildly. Oh, my goodness. And I really hope that we can contribute to international efforts to monitor and manage biodiversity um, I remain very interested in plant function and physiology and how it evolved on Earth, but I also want to connect that to how do we restore ecosystems, how do we maintain ecosystem functions in an era of rapid global change. I do feel that we're in a moment in time where our scientific efforts have to be focused on addressing these challenges in front of us with global change and biodiversity loss. So that's where I'm planning to put my efforts in for the rest of my career. <laughs> that sounds so inspiring and so fantastic. And you are on your way with these, especially with these wonderful last, most recent papers of yours, but in addition to the great body of work that you've contributed to. Thank you so much for sharing your insights on these two fascinating pieces of scientific research. And all of us wish you the very best for your work in the future, Janine. Thanks again. Thank you, Nalini. It's my pleasure. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 1030 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs> <laughs>